everyone, and welcome to another episode of Equals. This is Nadia. Welcome, everyone. This is Nabil. Welcome to Equals. Welcome to an episode that promises to change the way we think about foreign aid. It's episode five of Equals this season. And Nadia, can you believe it's our first episode together this season? It's taken this long. That is obscene. Max, <laughs> is, Max has clearly been hogging the microphone. Friends out there, the rumors, they're not true. What you've read in the tabloids, it's not true. There's not a split in the band, but... <laughs> I mean, suffice to say, if there was, we all know about your solo ambitions, Nadia. In true Beyonce style, you know, I'm going out there. No, no, you know, we know Max <laughs> is a real Beyonce. So we know who really runs the world, right? Ah, nicely done. Well done. And that brings us nicely to the geopolitics of aid. <laughs> I'm on a roll. Um, so big topic, friends, uh, we're talking about aid. And in many ways, actually, so many of us are connected, we're weaved into what we can call this kind of global aid ecosystem, aren't we? That's right. That's right. And I think a lot of people, you know, if they sit down and think about it, will realize just how how we're all connected. You could be a taxpayer with your tax dollars going to a government who is then uh, channeling resources to, to foreign aid. You could be a direct donor, you know, dropping change in a bucket, for example, for an organization or a cause. Absolutely. And you could be somebody who's who's who receives aid. You could be you know, a teacher whose government depends on aid to fund its schools. You could be one of the very few, and I underline very few, who've received a COVID-19 vaccine because of aid. That's right. Or you could even work for an NGO like we do. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and look, seeing it from where we do, Nadia, there is a bit of a reckoning on aid right now, isn't there? And, you know, we're going to hear some of that in the podcast today. But I'm keen to start off by just sharing how aid has had an amazingly positive role in many ways. I can think of a few examples, but one is, you know, the Global Fund for HIV and malaria and tuberculosis has literally helped save millions of lives. I think of, you know, civil society activist groups based here in Nairobi challenging government, you know, fighting on structural causes. They're also funded by aid. That's true. That's true. And on the other hand, I mean, even in the examples that you've outlined and many more I can think of, aid has a ton of colonial dynamics. Mm. Uh, it's often politicized. Um, increasingly, we're seeing it be securitized. And I think there are a lot of seriously good questions about the quality of aid. And, you know, for me, even right now, seeing what's happening out there, there are questions about how fragile some of the aid achievements you know, we have celebrated still are. If you look at the masses of people, for example, who have been thrown back into extreme poverty because of the COVID-19 shock, you wonder, is is that what aid is about? Something so frail that it can just, you know, be reversed in an instant? No, that's, and it's, and it's really important to raise that. And it's obviously, it's not new as well, is it, Nadi? Because we've seen over the years, for example, how aid has been increasingly redirected by by some governments, by some rich governments towards the private sector on issues like education, you know, funding rich men in rich capitals rather than girls in, in poorer countries. And look, we'll be covering many of these questions over this episode. In, in 30 minutes, we'll be asking, you know, does aid work? What are the risks of aid in the way that it's manifested? And we put the question quite directly. Is aid so colonial that it's beyond repair? We're going to cover all of that in just 30 minutes. 30 <laughs> minutes. Unbelievable. No, really. But we'll try to get into a lot of these questions. And we think we've found an amazing person to ask uh, 
uh, these questions to and who's going to give us some answers there. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's a tremendous pleasure. We'll be speaking with Degan Ali. She's the executive director of an NGO called Adesso based here in Nairobi. She's very much part of the aid sector, but truly she's one of the most outspoken activists who are really demanding an overhaul of the way the whole system works. She's somebody who's part of the system and also challenges it. And I think we can trust her to give us a really honest opinion on this. So let's get to the interview. Welcome, Degan, to the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Nadia. So good to have you on. And welcome, Degan. And it's um, it's also great to hear that it, it's true, right? You're going to have your own podcast out soon as well. Inshallah. It's called Imagine If. I hope to launch it in the next uh, month. Brilliant, brilliant that, that we look forward to, Imagine If. It's been really interesting looking at your work over the years. Let me ask it in a, in a very simple way. What's your problem? What's your beef with, with the aid sector? My beef with the aid sector is multifold. I think the first one is that we have aid altogether. We shouldn't be having aid. We should be having mechanisms for true development of global South countries, especially former colonies. And we need to recognize how the aid architecture is part and parcel of the design of a neocolonial and racist structure to perpetuate economic and political hegemony of the empires. After independence, many of these countries needed a Marshall Plan. Uh, The Marshall Plan of Germany and many of the other countries was predicated on a sense of equality. You and I are the same. That's not what happened to Africa and Asia and uh, Latin America. What happened was, how do we design the architecture of the IMF, the World Bank, the UN uh, veto power, the P5, uh, World Trade Organization, ensure, to ensure our economic hegemony and that we continue to extract riches from these countries. Uh, but we give them the semblance of being independent. Uh, we give them the idea that they're really independent, but they're not. So that's what I have a problem with. Uh, aid should not be there. And it's not a source of real development and um, source of sovereignty for the global south. Degan, that's a, it's a very it's a very powerful challenge and a powerful way to start this interview. But a first challenge back is to say that while understanding those global dynamics, we see aid helping lift families out of poverty. We see it funding girls to be able to go to school. We see it funding civil society groups. Is aid really so colonial that it needs to end? Aid is not what lifted millions and millions of people out of poverty in China in South Korea and many of those quote-unquote Asian tiger countries that have developed since the 70s, 80s. What lifted those countries out of poverty and millions out of poverty is industrialization and the ability to produce products that they can trade in the global market as equals um, and um, trade policies that benefit those countries that have been, been given the privilege of having that because of their political power and all of that. That's not how Africa has been treated. Africa is still a source of raw materials. It's not a producer of chocolates, even though Ghana is trying to change that. And I commend them for the policies of Ghana. Um, but the major exporters of cocoa are still a source of cocoa, not high quality chocolate that's traded in the global market. Um, same thing, you know, with tires, uh, they don't produce, you know, their source of rubber and not uh, producers of tires. So many other examples. So this is this is what I'm talking about. I think what we are doing is we are just fooling ourselves into thinking that household level, maybe some changes at the household level for a few 
thousands of people here and there is really lifting people out of poverty, but it's not. I've seen in my country of Somalia that actually aid has created more dependency and has encouraged people to leave productive sectors like farming uh, to come to the cities to take out cash handouts. Uh, We led and pioneered cash transfers in the early 2000, and I'm very proud of our work. But one of the things I do regret is how the AIDS community has taken this to be like a one-shot option for everything. And it's been done in a completely horrible way in Somalia. And what we've done is we disincentivize people from returning to their farms and they just become, you know, recipients of these disorganized, disjointed cash transfers where one beneficiary, one household beneficiary, quote unquote, can tap into transfers of three, four different agencies, possibly in a month. So this is what we've created. I have seen that with my own eyes. And so, no, I don't believe the current aid architecture is designed. And I'm we're complicit, including Adesso. And this is why we have tried to get off of this aid track and try to get more into the advocacy track to change the system. But we, we fool ourselves into thinking we're transforming people's lives, but we're not. Powerful, very vivid. I can just picture a lot of what you were talking about. And it made me sort of think at a very basic level, is there something racist or perhaps colonial about the aid sector itself by design? Or is that too harsh a criticism? No, I don't think that's harsh at all. I have experienced it personally. Imagine a bunch of Ghanaians go and fly to respond to Hurricane Katrina. And they speak in their local language. They run these meetings, their coordination meetings in local language. They completely uh, marginalize and have meetings without the local partners, the local community organizations operating in New Orleans. They don't respect FEMA. They don't really work in coordination with FEMA. They basically decide for you what you need, what kind of assistance you need. That seems preposterous, right? That scenario. But that's the kind of scenario that happens to us every single day in the global South. And we're supposed to accept that. And we're supposed to be not only accepting it, but feel privileged, grateful, uh, thankful for that level of assistance. I have been to coordination meetings in my own country about my own people that have been told you're not allowed to come in because you're a Somali. And we don't trust Somalis with this kind of information. And that's why we don't want Somalis to be here. You know, these are the kinds of things that happen every single day. That's not unusual. So yeah, and when you have 25-year-old young people, young graduates coming in to supervise projects in our countries, overseeing 40-year-old staff who have amazing experience, not only project management experience, but lived experience and the context and the understanding of the situation. And and they're being supervised by these 25-year-old white kids. Yeah, it is racist by design. We want to get to talking to solutions in a second, but you know, you touched on something there that is that I'm sure many people listening to the podcast will be able to relate to. Now, I want to ask a challenge that you must get and that exists out there when talking about, for example, really putting power where it should be with local partners. Some people will say, well, if we give to local communities, if we give to local civil society groups, then how are we going to meet the standards? How are we going to meet the transparency? Or in fact, they'll say, how will those groups on the ground, and I've heard this, how will those groups be impartial in the way that we are? 
What do you say to that, Degan? So this idea, this narrative that fraud and risks only reside in the domain of local NGOs is a racist narrative and that they cannot be neutral. So let me ask you then, is it neutral to work in one clan area for 20 years in Somalia as an INGO? Uh, is it neutral that you hire um, one clan in your HR um, in Puntland or in, in Mogadishu and that clan dominates your entire agency? It happens in Kenya. It happens in Somalia. Is that neutral? Secondly, the issue of neutrality automatically assumes that I, as a person living in my own country, have no capacity to be human, that I cannot uh, work in and work with people all across the country, and that you as a white person, as a third party, as an outsider, have the ability to work all in, with all clan groups, and that I don't. I don't have the ability to get over my clan biases and with, work with all communities, which is, I'm sorry, frankly, just, again, another racist kind of trope. Because I, as Degen, I get flack for my own people. But that is important to me because I wanted to demonstrate that it's possible for us to work across clan lines. I wanted to demonstrate. And I'm happy to say that after Adesso has done this, this has become an example for many other local NGOs. So we see a lot of local NGOs operating from Hargeisa, now operating in the South. We see a lot of local NGOs that used to operate in the South exclusively operating now in the North. This is a good thing. This is a positive thing. And so I, I'm very, very offended by that. And I find that whole narrative extremely racist. When you say I've been working in these communities for 30 years with these partners in, in Turkana or in, um, in Puntland, I find that problematic. You shouldn't be working with the same partners for 20 years, 30 years and be proud of it. You should be helping those partners to be independent of you, graduate from you, and not need you anymore, and you should exit. That's your role. We keep talking about exit strategy, but actually what we are designed, what's in the core DNA of INGOs and UN agencies is income and growth and staying right. as long as possible. It's not about exiting. We're part of the sector. We see the criticism, and we also want to see the sector change. So big picture, and then we can get into some of the details how do we practically change to get this sector right? How do, we, how do we practically decolonize it? I think first and foremost, we need to understand our own complicity and accept that. And we need to have a really, a real deep, deep reflection on the problems of the aid sector as a whole. Decolonizing aid, as I said, leads to a conversation about, should we be even having aid? What is the alternative model for aid? What does that look like? And that looks like, to me, direct budget support to governments. I see a three pillar groups that should be, that are the key to any society, strong country. And that is the, that is the government, number one, as a duty bearer. Number two, it's civil society and well, private sector, probably number two, and three, civil society. Now, if we are saying we're going to give more budget support to the governments, but the governments are corrupt, well, I'm sorry, you know, we are part of the problem. The IMF and the World Bank and these governments, uh, OECD donor governments, contribute to corruption. People should read the book, The Economic Hitman. It's well-documented events that happen all the time where these governments contribute to corruption in the global south. But anyways, we need to give direct budget support. But if we're saying these countries are going to be corrupt or we're worried about how they're spending money, then invest in strong civil society that holds the government accountable. 
that turns the civil society that we have right now from direct implementers, NGOs of services that should be done by the government into advocates. And that transition needs to happen. And that transition requires investment and it requires multi-year funding, core funding, unrestricted funding to these NGOs so that they become real advocates for system change, for holding their governments accountable. And that's their role. Their role is not to run a healthcare facility. Their role is not to run a school. Their role should not be to distribute cash or food. That's not their role. That's the government's role to do that. Direct service delivery needs to be transitioned to the governments as much as possible where possible. I'm not talking about an active war conflict like in Yemen. I'm not talking about those kinds of environments, but I'm definitely talking about protracted crisis like Somalia for 30 years, certainly talking about like Liberia. I'm talking about Sierra Leone. I'm talking about all of these countries uh, that Nepal, I mean, Nepal earthquake, come on. I mean, there's no justification for the kind of no man's land kind of reaction to the earthquake where everybody just parachuted in and did whatever they wanted. The Nepalese government has learned from that. They won't allow that next time. I hope they don't have another earthquake, but if they do, it's the same, that's what happened in the previous earthquake. That kind of response is not going to happen. Indonesia has learned from the tsunami. Philippines has learned. Those are the kinds of, I would like to see level of sovereignty and independence being exercised by governments more and more in Africa. I would like to see Africa following the path of Asia and saying enough is enough. We are the government. We're in charge. You do what we want. And we, you don't dictate to us what needs to be done. And then third, we have to have a conversation about solidarity with Global North civil society. Are you civil society or are you like you've turned us into, you know, mini me's of INGOs that we have become in the global South? Are you just implementers of projects and RFPs for your Global North donors? Or are you real civil society? If you're a real civil society, then you are going to confront the inequities and the colonial architecture. You're going to start confronting world trade organizations to allow equal trade policies and support negotiations, processes, and civil society representation in these negotiations that take place. What's come out very clearly from this interview so far is the role that the aid industry and that northern governments and international institutions need to do. Do you think we are putting as much emphasis on what those southern governments need to do? Are we pressurizing and, and pushing those southern governments to play their role enough? They're, I think they're doing what they can, where they have capacity and where they can resist that. It's very hard to do that if you're uh, Somalia, if you're a weak government. It's very hard to do that in Liberia. It's very hard to do that in Sierra Leone, in these post-conflict countries. It's very hard. And so... I think we as Global South Civil Society need to be doing much more. And this is one of the efforts that NIR is has focused on, is trying to focus on now, is to say, how can we have a Global South movement to push the G77 in this direction? How do we support the AU to replicate and do what ASEAN did uh, and the AHA Center in terms of having these kinds of legal policies and frameworks as a region on how to respond to disasters? How do we support those efforts? So I think that's the kind of things that we can do more and more. But I think we also need the support of Global North Civil Society to do their part as well. And they're not doing anything. They're not doing any heavy lifting right now in this sec- in this area and the issues that I'm talking about. Very few. Uh, maybe Oxfam would probably be one of the few that tries to address some of these issues. But other than that, I really, it's few and far between. I appreciate that, Degan, by the way. That'll, that'll help me go to work tomorrow with, with knowing that you think that. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say, generally, it does sound 
quite bleak, but I think you must have hope and optimism to some extent if you keep fighting this good fight. So what shifts do you think are happening that that do give you that hope that things can change for the better in this sector? Well, okay, just to say that I have very low expectations because in 2019, I was interviewed by DevEx and I talked about my experiences with racism in the sector in Somalia. And I didn't name names of organizations or agencies or donors. I just talked about my general experience. And that article basically turned into ammunition to blacklist me and Adesso by donors and to just... uh, Really? Yeah. So, and then almost less than a year later, now in 20 early 2020 we're having this whole conversation about racism dei and colonialism and aid so things changed very very quickly in the sector and that's one of the reasons like i said you know we have tried purposefully by design in our new strategy to turn ourselves from an organization that participates and is complicit in the system to an organization that focuses on advocacy and systems change and I realized that, you know, we, 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 we have to have other business models as an organization. We have to work on our financial independence. We have to become an organization that invests in other income streams so that we can continue to speak to truth to power. And that's one of the things that most local NGOs don't have. We don't have unrestricted funding. We don't have anything. We don't have reserves. We, we don't have money to keep our lights on tomorrow, to pay salaries. These are the kinds of real day-to-day crisis that most leaders of local NGOs are experiencing every single day. So I think I have uh, low expectations. <laughs> and uh, so the second thing is to say that The thing that gives me hope is conversations that I'm having with CEOs of INGOs who are having this kind of internal reckoning. And that's what's giving me hope. Last year, I decided to start my own consultancy company, and I'm I'm trying to work from within INGOs, and I'm trying to be sympathetic and recognizing the obstacles that if you're a CEO who wants to make some of these change happen, that you have with a board that's resistant, with senior leadership teams that are very invested um, in the old ways of working, the old power dynamics, the, in the, the traditional status quo aid architecture. So we started a process called the Pledge for Change with CEOs of major INGOs, including Oxfam, CARE, um, MSF, Save the Children UK, Plan International, and uh, Mercy Corps and Christian Aid um, and Action Aid. So this process, we're going through this process where we meet with the CEOs once a month, and um, then we started working groups on certain like low hanging fruits, things that we can all agree on need changing. So one is on partnerships, equal partnerships, and one is on decolonizing images, which is like poverty porn, and one is on lexicon. And trying to come up with some very practical, actionable, implementable, like and made accountable type of commitments. I don't want any more of these charter for change and grand bargain commitments that are just diluted. When you have a negotiation process with hundreds of NGOs or actors, everything is the lowest dominant common denominator. I'm hoping for more courageous, ambitious kind of commitments with, as I said, real milestones and real like targets that we can hold them accountable to. And then hopefully they can now present it to the sector wide and say, we as leaders of the sector have come up with this. Are you you know, going to come on board as bond members, as interaction members, as civicus mem- um, uh, ICVA members and so on? So that's the thing that gives me a little bit of hope. Uh, I hope that 
they do come up with some courageous and ambitious commitments by next year. That's what I'm really, really praying for, inshallah. Inshallah. Degan, thank you so much. Solidarity with you. And I feel we've gone from the real, the real kind of meta challenges of global development and the geopolitics uh, to, to, to really practical stuff. And also, whilst a very challenging interview, actually, you also give us and many people within this broad sector something to work towards. We know we all have to play our role uh, to decolonize and, and to do right by the values that we believe in. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And Nadia, there we have it. I'm reminded why we do this podcast. It's for amazing interviews like that. And there are many amazing points that Degan made. One I've scribbled here and underlined many times is a point Degan made about the Marshall Plan that the US exacted in the wake of World War II. It saw Western Europe as really its equals, right? And the Marshall Plan was incredibly beneficial for both those parts of the world. But the way the North then and now approaches aid is not always a relationship of equals, is it? That's that's right. And it it brings us back to this question of racism and colonialism. Um, and, you know, I, I really appreciated how Degan was talking about the geopolitical dynamics of aid and even was criticizing the role that INGOs play and the racism embedded in how local civil society is treated, pushed aside, you know, kept out of decision making, even when they should be the ones in the driving seat. Absolutely. And also, I do appreciate at the same time, amid that serious criticism that Degan provided, she also gave us a very clear idea of how to do aid better, of how to decolonize aid, you know, be it giving governments money, right, to, to pay for nurses and for teachers and, and, and so on. But also aid that really works with civil society to push for system change, to change the rules of the game. Yeah. And, and also not to replace or undermine the role that government should play either, right? Absolutely. And that's a very, very important clarification. I can't help but think, Nadia, you know, just imagine if aid was used like that more often. I can't help but think, you know, aid itself isn't the problem. It's the way we've constructed aid is a problem. And that, for me, is one of the big conclusions of this conversation. We don't want an aid, right, that perpetuates its own existence, but instead an aid that's about justice, an aid that writes itself out of a job. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned justice. We were having a conversation just the other day, framing aid as mass scale redistribution of wealth at a global level, right? And not not redistribution just for the sake of it, even although there's merit in that too, but redistribution because this wealth exists in the first place, because it was created on the backs of so many other countries. So really seeing aid as reparations for the harm that has that has been committed. Absolutely, Nadia. I can't agree more. And and look, this is an important issue. And we, we asked one of our previous guests to chime in on this, Crystal Simeone. She was a guest of our last episode. And it has got a particular relevance to Africa. And we asked her, you know, Crystal, do you think Africa needs aid more than ever? Or do you think aid is so colonial that it shouldn't exist? And this was her answer. I think Africa needs reparations. I'll quote you from Jason Hickel. And he wrote in a number of articles, Europe and North American colonies alone extracted an estimated 222 million hours of forced labor from African slaves between the years of 1619 and 1865. Valued at the U.S. minimum wage with very modest interest, that's equivalent to $97 trillion. And that's more than the entire globe's 
uh, GDP. So that just begins to paint a picture of the inequality that we see now is a manifestation of our historical extractive nature of how the world was organized or how, you know, select few organize the world. So before we start talking about aid, I think we need to center the conversation on reparations and what that looks like and how that can be done in a fair way. So yes, to answer your question, I think it is a colonial construct. I also, with the way that global trade policies are set up, this idea of from aid to trade is also not just at all. The same constructs of extractivism exist in world trade agreements, as we can see through vaccine equity and us not being able to produce our own vaccines because we don't have a waiver on the TRIPS agreement. And so I think we have to go back in time And I think we have to be honest about where we are and why we are where we are and have a real honest conversation about reparations and decolonizing the idea of development and what needs to finance development. Brilliant. And and there we have it, aid as reparations. So it sounds like a new campaign slogan to me. You think we're there yet? I think it's a brilliant campaign slogan, Nadia, and it's where we need to go. And look, language is a massive part of this. And for me, the language of aid is a language of charity. But the language of reparations, that's the language of justice. Nice, Nabil. You know, I have to say, clearly, our episodes are far more profound than the ones that you've been doing with me. <laughs> you know, I love our episodes, Nadia, but I've also got to say, mine and Max's episodes are pretty profound too, you know? <laughs> it's true, it's true. Okay, okay. The point is, let's not wait another five episodes before we do this together again, okay? Fair enough, fair enough. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Uh, Tweet out about the episode, share it with friends, with family, leave us a solid review, all the usual things. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now.